As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? It's just such an incredible leap forward in terms of scalability that it's going to allow computers to do things that we like wouldn't have allowed ourselves to think that computers could do before. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, we're going back to school, guys. And the lesson? Quantum computing. Now, I hear you asking, what is quantum computing? I don't know, or at least I didn't know, because I gotta say, for all the years I've been out here, this subject, this kind of term, quantum computing, inevitably bubbles up, usually accompanied by some breathless predictions about how it's going to change the world in ways we cannot even imagine. What it represents is effectively a a completely different kind of computing paradigm that just is another universe in terms of the ability to process information, solve problems, unlock puzzles of everything from biology to, I mean, pick your very difficult problem. You can aim quantum computing at it, and theoretically, it can do some pretty incredible things, which will mean a lot for us humans. All that said, how it works, how far away it is, the challenges, the actual potential, all of it was, to me, a mystery and kind of had remained so. Now, you may recall that some months back we had on David Cowan from Bessemer Venture Partners, um, and we talked about space. Cowan was a... One of the early backers of a bunch of space companies, and we had a jolly old time talking about that whole world. But at the end of the conversation, we somehow turned to quantum computing, as one does. Um, And Cowan mentioned that he loved talking about it, Um, he understands it, which is one up on me right from the jump, Um, and would happy to come back on to explain what it is, how it works, and why it's a big deal. So that is what this week's episode is. Now I must warn you, you kind of got to strap in here because we have to delve into some physics to kind of lay the groundwork of just how this works because it's just works fundamentally different than than the computers and computing that you think of today so we cover that and then we zoom back out to talk about where the technology is now and how far it is from prime time anyhow so that is what we are doing this week so if you are curious about the future of technology and how it may affect all of us humans this is the episode for you. So without further ado, I will now hand you over to my conversation with David Cowan of Bessemer Venture Partners. Enjoy. 
And sorry, just one programming note before we get started today. I just wanted to explain my audio is a little funky. I forgot to turn on my mic because I'm not very smart. Um, so you can still hear me, but it's not the usual quality. However, you can hear David just fine. And of course, um, next week we'll be back to normal because I'm going to put a big post-it note that says turn on mic. Anyhow, that's it. Enjoy. Of course, when we did the podcast a few months back, at the end, we turned into quantum computing and you're like, oh, I love talking about it. And I was saying, like, I've spoken to lots of people about quantum computing and it's still kind of like a black box for me. You hear a lot about it. It's one of these technologies that theoretically can change everything. It's gotten a lot of investment, especially over the past year. But I still don't quite understand how it works and how far off it is. And so we're just thinking, as we set off into 2022, I was looking back at 2012 and kind of what the world looked like then. And it was funny, I was going through coverage. And what some of the stories in the early 2012 were like a young Mark Zuckerberg pissing off a lot of people on Wall Street because he was showing up to meetings in a hoodie ahead of his IPO. And who knew that, you know, a decade later, that would be a trillion dollar company and Facebook would be Facebook. I think he knew. <laughs> he certainly that's why he was wearing the hoodie <laughs> exactly um so we're just trying to cast our minds forward you know to 2032 for example and it feels like quantum computing could be one of these big step changes and i don't know if it would be worth just a bit of kind of context to start of kind of where we started with computing computing power where we've got to today and then what this next step could mean what can it do that we can't do now? Right. So thinking back on the last century, which was really the century in which computing was, for all intent and purposes, invented and developed, the real innovation of the century was the transistor, which allowed us to scale up computation. And on top of that, I would say the development of the circuit gate model that allowed us to develop circuitry and processors that assume you have all the working transistors underneath you and what can you do with this now and, and developing incredibly complex software. And so we came out of that century with the capabilities to really write any kind of software we want and to get on this train of Moore's law where we were seeing computational ability doubling roughly every 18 months based on our ability to squeeze more and more transistors onto a chip. And we still find ourselves today in, in that mode where we look at software as something that we know how to do, and we expect that computers will just get faster and faster. And there's a lot of speculation that we may be ending the end of Moore's Law because we've just squeezed as many transistors as we can onto a chip without, without getting to the point of scale where the objects are so small that, that quantum effects are actually getting in the way of, of how these transistors work. And down at that scale of reality, reality gets very kind of fuzzy and glitchy and jittery. And so that probably spells the end of Moore's law with respect to what we now call classical computers. However, that jitteriness actually creates an entirely new opportunity to create what we call quantum computers that can take computers to levels of performance that have just been really undreamed of in in a classical sense. And so that's what we're that's what we're going to talk about today. 
And one of the reasons why it's so kind of spooky and black box is that to understand how these computers work, you have to understand sort of the way that quantum mechanics work and how the universe actually behaves very differently than what we intuitively observe. And that reality is actually quite counterintuitive because we live in this world where we inhabit a certain size, we are complex organisms, we, we have so many particles inside us and around us that by the time we experience reality, the effects of quantum mechanics are invisible. That is, they're entirely visible now to scientists at the particle stage, but we don't experience reality at the particle stage. And so if we did, then this would be intuitive to us, but, but it's not. And so what is, it, what is this counterintuitive reality? I can explain it in the context of the history of an experiment called the double slit experiment. And so think about a wall that has two slits in it and uh, you fire a gun at that wall and you kind of fire it in a haphazard way. And obviously a lot of the bullets are going to hit the wall, but a lot of them are going to go through those slits. Uh -huh. And then on the other side of the wall, you have another wall and you can see where the bullets hit. Yeah. And very naturally, as you would imagine, the bullets are going to cluster in two places behind the two slits, right? And it's possible that they kind of ricochet off a little bit in this direction or this direction, but mostly you're going to get these two clusters. That makes intuitive sense. If on the other hand, instead of firing a gun with bullets, instead we kind of pushed water through two slits in a wall. We had like a wall and there was maybe two holes in the wall, big holes, and a wave of water came at that wall. And then behind it, there was several feet behind it, there was another wall, and you can kind of see where that other wall gets wet. And it behaves very differently than bullets. In a wave, what happens is a bunch of water comes through each of the openings and then cascades out in a wave, like a ripple, like you see on a lake. And when those ripples hit each other, when they interfere with each other, you get peaks and valleys and you get waves that can't, like a, a valley can cancel out a peak, but two peaks make a bigger peak, two valleys make a bigger valley in the wave. And these waves, when they interfere, you get kind of a bigger wave, right? And what you'll see on the other wall is that it doesn't get wet at a solid, in an even way. It's not like the water is flat. Instead, you get these lapping waves. You get these big waves when it gets the other wall. And you can see that the other wall is wet with these kind of big waves on it. So it's intuitive to understand that if you throw particles through double slits, you're going to get these clusters. Mm -hmm. But if you push waves through these slits, what you're going to get instead are these kind of wavy bands on the other side. And so in 1805, Thomas Young uh, decided that he would do this double slit experiment using light to determine whether light is, are, is made of corpuscles, which is what Newton called these particles of light, or whether light is a wave. And when he shined light at these two slits, and you know anybody can do this, you'll see that in fact, on the other side of the wall, what you get is bands of light. You don't get, mm. two, you don't get right. two clusters of light. And so clearly you're getting these, this, it's, the, it's a wave. It's just like you would expect from water. Okay, so that, does that mean, great, in 1805, Thomas Young proved that light is a wave. But hold on, in 1905, Einstein proved that through the photoelectric effect, that light is made of 
particles called photons. And so that seems like, yeah, hmm, is exactly right. People said, <laughs> hmm, what's going on? So maybe light is some kind of like dual particle wave thing. And people thought it was some kind of like, they use this word of duality, particle wave duality. Then in 1927, the same experiment was done using electrons where electrons were fired at the wall and we got bands. So again, electrons were behaving like waves, even though, what the hell? We know electrons are particles. Like, how can that be that they're also waves? So now that's kind of weird. Now, electrons also have this duality. So then in 1928, Davison Germer, he said, what if we don't send waves of light through? We now know that light is made of photons. What if we can send one photon at a time? And this way we can show that you're going to get these clusters, right? Because we're just going to send it one at a time, like a bullet. So he sent one through and it shows up on the other side and then another one and it shows up and then another one. And he does this a million times, one at a time. And then you look at where these bullets land on the other side and they're in bands. They're not in clusters. No, weird. What? Yeah. They actually sort of form themselves in these bands as though they were part of a wave coming through. Right, right. Okay, now this is kind of where we start saying, okay, this makes no sense. Like, what, what is going on with the world? And so then in 1974, these Italian physicists did the same thing with electrons, sending single electrons through, one at a time. And the same thing happened, where when you look at what happened on the other side, they made these bands. Okay, that's, that's really weird. So then they tried to figure out, why is this happening? We have to figure out, how can it be that they're showing up not in clusters? Let's try to track which hole each electron is going through. And as Feynman predicted, Richard Feynman, the physicist, he predicted this would happen and he was right. As soon as you look, as soon as you peek at which slit the particle, the electron goes through, then it stops doing the band thing and it just starts finding clusters again. So if you watch it go through the slits to know which one it goes through, it behaves like a particle. And if you don't watch it, it behaves like a wave and it finds all these bands, even though it's going through one at a time. That's weird. Okay. This is really weird, right? And then later in 2013, this experiment was done with 800 atom molecules. So these are enormous. These aren't like, these aren't little particles. This is a molecule with 800 atoms in it. And it was sent through one at a time and it found bands. Okay, so what this means is this is not a property of light. It's not a property of electrons. This is a property of everything. Everything in the universe behaves this way, that until you measure its position, it actually is everywhere at once. Okay, this is kind of sounds crazy, but this is now proven again and again and again by physicists. We think of particles as having a position. They only have positions once you measure where they are. And before you measure them, they exist everywhere. And when you measure them, they will collapse to a, to a single position. And that position is informed by this probability function that says, this particle is probably going to show up right where you expect it to show up. It's possible it might show up slightly off. It's conceivably possible it'll show up on the moon. But it's all a probability function. And so every particle is momentarily everywhere until such time as it interacts with the world, which is similar to measuring it. When they were measuring which slit, they were interacting with it in a way that caused it to pick a side. 
Because <laughs> until then, it was on both sides. Right. It was simultaneously in both places, which means that when it went through the two slits simultaneously, it collided with itself just like a wave of water would. So each single photon, each single electron, each single molecule was simultaneously going through both slits and then bumping into itself and causing itself to find these bands on the other side of the wall. I feel like I've just dropped into an episode of Doctor Who or something. <laughs> right, except, except this is the world we live in. And you could say, but that seems, it seems crazy. It's only crazy yeah. because we only see that wall like after all this has happened, yeah. right? We don't, we just don't experience life at the particle level, but this is actually, okay, so what does this mean? What it means is we can now take a computer and we're used to the idea that we have a, we have a, a chip with transistors in it that render certain logic and we send voltages through and those voltages can be zero, you know, low for zero or high for one. And it's going to pop out some output. We're going to get some, at the end of the circuit, we're going to see a zero or a one, and that's going to tell us an answer. If we can instead send in these voltages in a way that they're simultaneously zero and one, mm. then the circuit is going to operate on a zero and one at the same time. Both zero and one are going to move through this computer circuit. right? And they're both going to operate on the circuit. Now, at the other side, when you measure it, you're only going to measure a zero or one. You're only going to measure one of the outcomes, but put that aside for a moment. If we're able to, what we call entangle multiple particles in a way that the state of one depends upon the state of the other. And before I go on, let me just give an example of entanglement. When you think about if a particle for some reason splits apart, well, we know from momentum that if it splits in two pieces, the two pieces have to move in opposite directions. So if a particle splits apart, we may not know which direction they're moving, but if you find one of the particles, one of the components, then that tells you exactly where the other component is. And so coming back to this quantum mechanics, when a particle splits apart and the two components move in opposite directions, they're simultaneously moving in all directions. They're in what we call superposition, just like we spoke about before. And so both particles are in superposition. Both particles are everywhere at once. But when you measure one of them, the other one has to, has to that at that moment, also pick a side. Find its place too. Find its place too, right? So there you have two particles that are in superposition, but they're entangled. So if we can create multiple particles that are entangled in that way, and then we use the superposition of those particles to move not just one qubit, right, of zero and one together, but many qubits that are entangled. Then we can have a processor that's operating not just on, on one bit, but it could be an eight-bit qubit. Like we think of an eight-bit processor that can take eight ones or zeros. We could have an eight-qubit processor that takes eight ones and zeros. Right. And when every input is a one and a zero, what happens is that that logic is now operating on all possible combinations of those one and zero at the same time. So that's just uh, exponential increases. Exactly. There are two to the eight possible combinations of what those ones and zeros could be. Right. If you send eight qubits into a processor, there's two to the eight possibilities of what those would be if you measured them right now. As opposed to effectively, I don't know what, how many 
possibilities would there be I mean, just in let's call it a traditional 8-bit processor? Well, in a traditional 8-bit processor, at any given time, you're operating on only one combination of ones and zeros. Right. If you want the processor to process all possible combinations, you have to run it two to the eight times, one for each possible combination. Right. But this, you can do it all at once. This, you do it all at once. I see. And if you had 20 qubits or 100 qubits, it would do all two to the hundred possible combinations at once. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So what we're talking about is a completely different, like, universe in terms of processing capability. Yes, in terms of scalability, when you add one more qubit, to the processor, you're not just increasing it from like 20 to 21. It's not going up 5%. It's going up 100% every time you add a qubit. Right. You're doubling it with every qubit that you add. So, you know, today the fastest, you know, supercomputers in the world can roughly do, call it a trillion calculations uh, at a time. Well, that's, you know, roughly like two to the 40. And we already have quantum computers that can do about that. So quantum computers today are kind of approaching, although the quantum computers today have sort of physical flaws to them that make them not quite perfect. But roughly speaking, we're like approaching that kind of level with the quantum computers that we have today where they can, you know, get up to that kind of level of parallelism. But when we go from 40 to 80, we'll now be doing a trillion trillion processes at the same time. We're now, it's now taking that trillion, multiplying it by another trillion. And another 40 will multiply by yet another trillion. It's just such an incredible leap forward in terms of scalability that it's going to allow computers to do things that we like wouldn't have allowed ourselves to think that computers could do before. Now, how is it that when you put all of these different combinations through, at the end, you have to measure an answer. And when you measure an answer, you're going to force a collapse of the superposition and everything's going to come into one answer. And so you don't get to see all two to the eight or two to the 80 or whatever it is outputs. So that seems like a problem, right? Like we don't know, like you know that this is happening, but you don't get to watch everything that's happening inside because you would collapse the superposition. But what we can do is we can be clever about building circuits that basically allow us to answer yes, no questions. And what happens is we can build a circuit such that 
if any one of the two to the eight possibilities meets a certain condition, then we will put it into a flow that allows it to interfere with itself through this like self-interference. And that's going to put a one on one of the outputs where normally you would only have a zero. So basically what I'm trying to say is we can't see what's happening in the double slit experiment, but we can't see if there are bands coming off on the other end. We can see if there was interference. And so we can look for the interference as a sign that something happened with at least one of those outcomes. Now that also may not seem very useful, but I'll give you an example of how that allows us to solve a problem that we wouldn't have been able to solve. Yeah. The traveling salesman problem is the iconic problem that shows how computers have trouble scaling today. And the problem is, let's say you're a salesperson and you want to visit 10 cities in the United States and you want to know the shortest route to go through all 10 cities. It seems like such a simple thing. I mean, if I were going to two cities or three cities, you would just try some possibilities and you'd get it very quickly. But it turns out the only way to really solve the problem is to try every possibility. You you can like be, there are like clever ways to narrow down the possibilities, but effectively you have to pretty much try most, if not all possibilities. Basically trial and error until you get to the right answer. Trial and error. So with 10 cities, there are 10 factorial, 10 times nine times eight times seven times six. And so every time you add another city, you're multiplying the problem by how many cities there are, right? That is a crazy, like, so at 10, maybe, you know, a computer can do it, but at 50, there's no computer today that could do that. Mm. At 50 cities, it's just unsolvable. At 100 cities, unthinkable. At 200 cities, like, forget it. It's not like, let's talk about something else. It's not even worth talking about how we're going to solve a 200 city traveling salesperson problem. Now, with a a quantum computer, we can make a circuit that says, show me a route and let me calculate whether that route takes fewer than, you know, five days to go to all these cities. Yeah. And if any of those routes triggers it, then we're going to create this, we're going to create this interference and you'll see the band. And so now you can find out, oh, you know what? There's an answer that's less than five days. What about less than four days? What about less than three days? And then once you find out what you're looking for, you can say, okay, what if the first leg is New York, Chicago? Oh, it turns out there's no answer for that one. What if the first leg is New York, you know, St. Louis? And then you, through trial and error, you can work through which of the routes gives you an answer. Now that sounds like, well, that's a lot of trial and error too. Not really. You're talking like you do it for a hundred cities and then you do it for 99 cities. It's like a hundred plus 99 plus 98. That works out to be not a lot. That doesn't take very long. And so what happens is every time you do a calculation, you're basically weeding out like half of the possibilities. And if you do that, you know, a hundred times, you're weeding out half the possibilities, you very quickly can solve the problem. Gotcha. So that's how quantum computing is going to help us solve really, really difficult problems through these repeated insights of looking for for answers using immense parallelism. So two questions. What does a quantum computer look like? How, like the physics that you're talking about, how do you make that happen? Is it a fundamentally different machine, different process? And like, where are we today with the technology? So yeah, these look very different than uh, the computers we're used to. Although some of the instantiations of these quantum computers are, will over time start to look more like the computers that we have because we'll be able to fabricate them using 
semiconductor technology that, that we already know how to do. But the hardest thing about these things is that we need to isolate particles at the quantum level where we are able to isolate them from the universe in such a way that they don't interact with anything mm. and they remain in this superposition. That's really hard. You have to isolate a particle so it does not in any way interact with any other particles, right? So you're talking about, in most cases, replicating the vacuum of space and trying to suspend a particle in what looks like the vacuum of space and suspending it however you're going to suspend it using magnetism or whatever forces you can bring to bear. So it won't, it doesn't look like my MacBook. <laughs> right. You know what? And it never, like, and it, it, you know, I mean, you know, I guess never say never in these kinds of things, but yeah. there's no reason to think it ever will look like a MacBook because it doesn't need to. Today we have cloud computing. And as long as somewhere in the cloud is one of these quantum computers, then there's no reason for you to be carrying one around. So what does it look like? Well, this is where we get into the question of modality. Modality is a description of what kind of particle are you isolating in order to create one of these quantum computers. And so there are superconductor modalities, there's light modality, there's trapped ions, there's suspended atoms. Each one of these, there's diamond lattices. Each one of these is a trick that physicists have come up with where they can isolate some particle and then in a sense, move that isolated particle through a circuit right? without it losing superposition. So most of these modalities involve huge refrigerators and vacuums that can replicate the conditions of space, very big, expensive gear. And if you look inside of you know IBM's quantum computer center, you'll see dozens of these big, huge refrigerators and, and vacuums where you know they're creating superposition for, for superconductors. Right. So along with these circuits, every quantum computer also in some way interacts with a conventional computer. And the conventional computer is kind of feeding it and reading the answers and doing processing and sometimes reconfiguring the transistors, the gates, the logic gates, so that what the quantum computer does can change from computation to computation. But each one looks looks kind of funky and different and large and, and weird today. Yeah, so it sounds like it's a little bit, and this is maybe not the right analogy, but thinking about like, you know, the smartphone form factor. We experimented with a bunch of different designs in the early days. No one had quite figured out what's the best way to make this work until we came up with the multi-touch iPhone, whatever it may be. It sounds like quantum computing, they're still trying, to, still trying to figure out what's the optimal way to make this and make it work. That feels like where we are right now. Although, I mean, we're actually really far from that point because today they don't really work yet. And so right now, I mean, like you're talking about optimizing yeah, yeah, a product yeah, yeah. so that it delights yeah. the user, right? Yeah. Right now, they don't really even, they're so glitchy there's so many errors going on yeah. that we they they work. I mean, there's no question. This is like, I mean, there were, several years ago, people would tell, there were people who said, oh, quantum computing is a hoax. Like, that's just, yeah, yeah. it's it's not a hoax. I mean, it, there, are, there are probably a hundred quantum computers in the world today that are actually running and working. There are so many errors and glitches going on that they're not yet commercially valuable. Right. They're very delicate flowers. Yeah. And, they're, and they make mistakes. Yeah. And that's like, it makes it really hard 
to solve complicated problems when your computer is making mistakes, right? Yeah. And so, um, and so, there's a common term called NISC, which is noisy intermediate scale quantum. Hmm. And what that means is that it refers to really what quantum computing will look like over the next ten years when we have quantum computers that have a lot of qubits and can do a lot of raw processing, but they are noisy; they make mistakes. And there are people who are developing all kinds of interesting algorithms around error correction, but also around problem solving. That is, how do you solve a problem with a quantum computer when you know the computer is making mistakes? And and this NISC era is one where we know this is we have to live with this for the next decade or so. Maybe it's five years or twenty years. I don't know. At some point, though, there's good reason to believe that we'll get past the NISC era and we will tame quantum computing to the point where it's as or nearly as reliable as classical computing today. And then at that point, you can kind of ignore the hardware and you can just focus on the software and the algorithms and, right. and, and all of that and take advantage of it. So if we break out our crystal ball and go back to where we started, say, say the year is 2032, and I know this is completely a mugs game, especially in tech. Can you conceive of just where we are with quantum computing, is there a big problem or a like a thing that will like people in the industry are like, man, if we can figure this out, we could use, we could point this at problem X and really come up with a solution or a different way of doing things or whatever it may be. I don't know if that's the right way to think about it, but 10 years out, kind of what's the there there? You know, what, what, what should we be thinking about? Yeah, there there are two domains of problems, which in 10 years from now, I'm confident will be very well addressed by quantum computers in 10 years. And those the two areas are molecular simulation. So using quantum computers to show you how particles will behave at the quantum level. And this is something that's so difficult to do now because when you think about a simple question like, you know, take a protein and is this protein going to fold in a certain way? There are so many particles exerting so many forces simultaneously. It's like traveling salesman problem squared. I mean, you just, yeah, yeah. You, you, you just can't, it's just so hard to be able to, to simulate that. We believe quantum computers will be very good at simulating those kinds of things. And that will open up all kinds of applications and drug discovery and chemical chemistry and materials design. Personally, I think that's where quantum computing holds the greatest promise for impacting our lives Yeah, is around drug discovery and perhaps materials designs and ways that allow us to get to sustainable energy mechanisms. And so the, that's really the, probably for me, the most exciting prospect. And that's something where people do think in the next 10 years, we will have computers that are good enough to solve those problems. So when you say on the sustainable energy front, what would that look, what do you mean? What would that look like? Well, think about the innovations to come on battery design or solar cells. Right, right. And quantum computing will give chemists and physicists this window into you know, particle interactions that they don't have today. And so that, that's where we'll see hopefully major strides. I mean, take something like catalysis. Catalysis is the process by which bacteria fix nitrogen in the soil. Mm. Um, basically, bacteria can make nitrogen, right? And we don't really know how they do it. And so the way we make fertilizer today is we make ammonia in these high energy intensive, high pressure systems. And 
something like 2% of the world's energy today is applied just to making ammonia for shit. Fertilizer. For shit yeah. for fertilizer. And yeah, so yeah. that's like 2% of energy that we just that we use because we don't understand how bacteria work, right? And another domain of problem is in the area of optimization. So take a, a problem like your, your Amazon and you've got a whole bunch of packages you got to deliver to a whole bunch of homes. What's the right route to send your vans out? I mean- The traveling salesman. That, that's the traveling salesman problem, right? And that's yeah. something where quantum computers will do really well. And they'll do really well because it's the kind of problem where you don't have to have the best answer to be super valuable. The quantum computer does not tell you the very, very best route, but it can tell you routes that are way better than what you're doing today. And so in optimization, you don't necessarily need the very best to have a lot of value. Obviously, there are optimization issues around logistics, around financial modeling and strategy. So potentially, there's a lot of money to be made there. It doesn't feel to me like as profoundly important in terms of changing our lives, but that's another set of problems which will which will likely be addressable. Then there are other problems that won't be addressable during those 10 years. And probably the most, the one that people talk about most in quantum is cracking cryptography and basically breaking Bitcoin. And that will happen one day because one day we will, quantum computers will be able to factor very, very large uh, numbers and in a way that classical computers can't. And, and once we can do that, that breaks the, underlying assumption of most of the cryptographic protocols in use out there in the world. At some point, it'll be the biggest heist of all time. <laughs> so there are nation states who are dipping their toes into quantum with uh, a hope for that shot at, at a heist. It's not going to happen for a very, very long time. And there's plenty of time for us to basically swap out the protocols we're using for quantum immune protocols and there are lots of academics who have come up with all kinds of ways of, of creating cryptographic protocols that aren't vulnerable to this factoring attack. So I have two questions, and then I'll let you go. Uh, as a venture capitalist in this world of quantum, you know, I was just doing some reading before we got on the call, and you know, it's Google, Amazon, Microsoft, you know, all the usual suspects you, you would think of who are either investing in startups, developing their own technology, doing both, et cetera. Do you see just given the um, obstacles you laid out, the technological obstacles laid out to actually make this and make it work? You know, is this a problem that only big tech can solve? Or is this, is this you know, potentially the domain of the next great tech company that we don't know about yet? So the best analogy here would be the pharmaceutical industry, where you have big pharma companies and they all want new drugs uh, and they all have new drug development programs in order to cure cancer and all kinds of diseases. Yeah. Um, but when you're dealing with science, throwing money at the problem doesn't always solve it. You just don't know which approaches are really going to work. And the best thinkers are usually not employees of those big companies. They're usually... Uh, grad students at some university somewhere, and not necessarily at you know Caltech. They could be in. I mean, they are distributed. The best quantum physicists are distributed in universities around the world. And so the big tech companies. The only one of them that you mentioned that's actually got a real contender in the race today is Google. The others are. Some of them are like they have research projects, but. What they're more likely doing is kind of biding their time to see 
what approaches out there are going to work, and then they're going to acquire them, which is just like what Big Pharma does. So Big Pharma has its own drug development programs, but mostly they grow their portfolio by acquisition of smaller biotech companies. Well, look, that's super helpful. And mission accomplished. I actually think I understand quantum computing now. At least I understand the theory, <laughs> which right. is a lot further along than I was uh, 45 minutes ago. I, I think it's great if you share that understanding with, with your readers. Um, it is for almost everybody. It is a black box. Even in, even in colleges, quantum computing is not yet taught. And so um, an understanding of what it means is is really restricted to graduate level students today. And obviously that has to change and it will change. Um, but it starts with trying to spread more of an understanding of what it is and what it means. I thought perhaps I could educate my colleagues by buying them the book, Quantum Computing for Dummies. And so I bought that book. And on the first page, it says, oh, you know, anyone can read this book. All you need is to have, you know, at least a year of quantum physics and a familiarity with Hilbert spaces. And so... <laughs> Uh, so I did perhaps that was that book was uh, was misbranded because that yeah I think I, I I think I think perhaps dummies was not the yeah. right not the right word for the audience of that book yeah 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 so exactly um, great well look thank you for taking the time uh, again and um, we'll spread the word on quantum computing and and um, yeah we'll check back in twenty thirty two hopefully sooner than that and <laughs> <laughs> see how everything's gone. Awesome. Okay, this is fun. Thanks very much. For sure. Thank you so much. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank David for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you all for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends, neighbors, loved ones, enemies, whomever about this podcast and spreading the word because it helps when other people listen to it and tune in, etc. I won't be writing about quantum computing this week. There's a whole bunch of stuff bubbling away, uh, so we haven't quite figured out what we're going to zero in on. But I will be in the Sunday Times this weekend at thetimes.co.uk. You can go to Twitter, at Danny Fortson, that's where I am. Or you can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Have a fantastic weekend, and we will be back next week with another episode for you. Enjoy. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.